welcome to this edition of Development Matters, the London International Development Centre podcast series. I'm Sarah Hambly, Communications and Public Engagement Manager at LIDC. This podcast considers interdisciplinary research on current development issues, and today we will be discussing global migration. More than one billion people are estimated to be migrants, living either inside or outside their country of birth. Since an influx of Syrian refugees arrived in Europe in 2015, the question of dealing with migrants and asylum seekers has dominated Western headlines. Although net migration in Europe has declined, anti-migration rhetoric persists and has provoked political instability in countries such as Germany and Spain. What's more, US President Donald Trump has drawn ire for his zero-tolerance policy towards irregular immigration. However, the prevailing discussions around borders, security and control have not enhanced our understanding of this issue. In this episode, we will explore why migration remains such a hot-button issue. We'll also explore the work of the LIDC Migration Leadership Team, MLT, which has been formed by the UK Economic and Social Research Council and Arts and Humanities Research Council. In this studio with me today, I have Professor Kavita Datta, Professor of Development Geography at Queen Mary University of London and co-investigator on the MLT. I also have Jenny Alsop, Postdoctoral Fellow on the MLT. Kavita, Jenny, welcome and thank you for joining me today. Migration is a hugely divisive issue with its challenges dominating electoral politics and foreign policy et al. Why does migration remain such a polarising topic and are we focusing too much on irregular immigration? So thanks very much for having us on, Sarah. Um, And maybe I'll just start off um, and try and answer this question. I think it's important, first of all, to recognize that migration has historically been a divisive issue um, and it's been a recurring debate, you know, since time gone by uh, in terms about what the costs and the benefits are of migration for both home and host countries. It's important to recognize that the sort of the, the concerns and the panics, if you like, around migration um, be, go up and down um, over a period of time. And so these are exacerbated at times of economic crisis. So if we think about the 2007 um, Great Recession, as it's referred to now, um, this was a period when we could see, for example, a rise in economic nationalism um, and this um, kind of a, a fear for migrants and a desire to protect our jobs for our workers. Um, and this was something that was evident across Europe Um, not just in the UK. Fears about migration are also fanned by right-wing media. Um, They're fanned by politicians, particularly at times of election, um, when this is, you know, migration is always a good way of getting, or anti-migration rhetoric is always a good, good way of getting votes. In terms of just thinking about the language that is used around migration, it is very sensational language, sensational terms. So the idea of crisis, of challenges, uh, migrants never simply arrive. They come, they flood a country, they arrive in swarms. And that reinforces a sense of powerlessness and panic, this kind of sense that our borders are not in our control. Um, I think it's also important to remember if we move away from these kind of broader observations, um, it's, it's, it's important to remember that migration patterns to the UK have changed very significantly in the last two or three decades, particularly in terms of where migrants settle. So even though cities like London continue to absorb a significant share of migrants, it's also the case that migrants who came from the European Union and the enlarged European Union ventured further afield and they settled in communities which had little prior history of in-migration. And the speed at which these communities then 
changed as these migrants settled there and the pressure that was put on social services like the NHS, um, notwithstanding the fact that the NHS is heavily dependent upon migrant doctors and migrant nurses, um, the pressures that migrants put on schools was perceived as, as as being deeply problematic, that there wasn't sort of, you know, at a, at a point when the you know national economy was sort of, if you like, um, under threat, um, these kinds of pressures were, 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 were very problematic. Another point perhaps that is interesting in this context is that older generations of migrants, and it is important to recognize that, have often been as inhospitable as native populations are to these new migrants um, because they perceive their integration as being under threat. Um, and when we talk about a native population in Britain, we need to recognize that the native population now is made up of migrants and non-migrants. And so their response to new migrants and to, to new flows of migrants are sometimes just as um, problematic. I would just add that the categories of uh, regular and irregular migration are obviously socially constructed um, as a result of various policies. Um, so an individual can go from being a regular migrant to an irregular migrant just in, uh, overnight, for example, uh, through overstaying a visa. They might be an international student at SOAS, for example. Um, and I would also just add that I think this focus on irregular migration is also linked uh, to to big business and uh, private companies. Um, we can see, for example, that the EU budget um, on combating uh, border well on, on combating irregular migration and managing borders uh, has gone up three threefold um in the last uh 10 years so this is also a question of you know what what is the what is the kind of economics behind behind uh, border management and anti-smuggling policies thank you the mlt's main objective is to develop a shared and participatory global strategy for identifying and supporting migration research. Could you tell us more about this, Kavita? Yep. So the migration leadership team is funded by um, two um, uh, research councils, the ESRC, which is the Economic and Social Science Research Council, and the AHRC, which is the Arts and Humanities um, Research Council. And what the MLT is charged with is essentially to develop a strategy which will inform their future funding of migration and forced displacement research. The, the team works on the principles of co-production, which means that we are interested in engaging with relevant stakeholders um, from the very start of the process and so not sort of just going to them at the end when we have the strategy written as at a point of dissemination, but to really involve them in the writing and in the not so much the writing, but in devising this um, strategy. So this means that we are interested in talking to a whole range of different stakeholders who are, who are working in the field of migration or of, of forced displacement, and these are not just researchers, but also policymakers, practitioners, artists, curators, um, activists um, at a regional level, at a national level, at an international level. And what we want to do through these conversations that we're having with these people is really to identify key and persistent gaps in knowledge. Um, and these are sort of, if you like, again, regional, national and international gaps in knowledge. We want to develop areas for policy innovation. Um, and we want to think about how and where migration research can have the greatest impact. Thank you. One of the MLT's goals is to forge a connection between the evidence on migration from the arts and that of the social sciences, the latter being more likely to inform policymaking. Jenny, why is this important? 
I think one of the most exciting things about the work of the MLT is this bridging of the arts and social sciences, um, you know, across academic disciplines, but especially in uh, migration and refugee studies. The debate has often really focused on quant data and on social sciences. And what we're seeing is that um, the arts more and more are telling us uh, new kinds of knowledge and new kind of ev evidence to, that are bringing new perspectives on, on this phenomenon. Um, so I think we can think about the arts as a source of data. Um, we don't need to recreate the wheel as researchers when we go into the field. Um, you know, we can look at the, the huge artistic output that already documents questions around migration. Um, and we can also use arts as a way of analysing data, kind of thinking about evidence differently. Um, numbers and but also you know visual visual methods and visual types of analysis um, and also arts as a way of communicating the the findings of our research research finds consistently that the public's more influenced by arts-based interventions than facts and figures and I think especially on a political issue like migration where there's a lot of misunderstanding and um, politics involved being able to communicate clearly um, with the public and, and have a debate is, is really important. Um, and living in this post-truth age, I mean, I think people are doubting traditional forms of knowledge, um, you know, and we need to move beyond statistics and talk about the, the human aspect of migration, really. Also, because we, we talked about irregular migration earlier, um, you know, the statistics and, and quant data when it comes to migration uh, are often uh, very difficult to to kind of collect and collate and make sense of. So we need to have this dual approach in order to have a holistic understanding of a complex phenomenon. Great, amazing, thank you. The MLT is convening a series of global migration conversations in cities such as Nairobi, Delhi, Washington DC, London and Brussels. Kavita, what have been some of the most interesting takeaways so far? So the global conversations have been really very stimulating. Um, we started in Delhi um, and then we went to Barcelona. We've been to Nairobi and we've been to Thessaloniki most recently. Um, and the other global conversations will follow on from that. And I guess um, the five sort of key take home um, points or the standout points have been first, the need um, the urgent need to decenter knowledge production, which is very much dominated by the North. Um, and I think it was really fantastic that we actually started the conversations in Delhi, um, as opposed to having the first one in London, um, because that was already a type of decentering that happened there. So that's really important. The second is, and it's related to the first point, is that it makes visible both research areas, but also then populations, migrant populations, refugee populations, which are not immediately apparent if we start from the perspective of the North, um, of the global North. Um, the third is that it, they've been really, really useful in bringing together regional researchers, um, which is very important because very often our conversations are between us and a particular set of actors. So, for example, between us and researchers in Delhi. Um, so what's been in, fantastic about the global conversations is that they actually brought in researchers um, and, and, and artists, etc., from Afghanistan, from, from Sri Lanka, etc., and brought them all in, in, in one con common forum. So it was, it was great to sort of widen that network. The, the fourth, and again related to that, is that the global conversations have highlighted regional power dynamics. Um, and again, if we go back to the Delhi um, conversation, it became apparent very early on that India dominates the region um, in terms of research agendas, in terms of funding, etc. Um, and so there's a need to decenter at regional levels as well and not just at a global level. And I think more generally, sort of all four of the event have really brought out the value of bringing different groups of people together. So one of the things that's um, important to recognize 
this is that migration studies and refugee studies have suffered from a prolonged period of balkanization, by which we mean that different people, different actors, different stakeholders have been sort of, if you like, pigeonholed into doing different, uh, in focusing on their particular areas. And they have not necessarily talked to each other. And there's disciplinary divides, there's methodological divides, there's geographical divides. And what's been really interesting about bringing researchers together with policymakers, with practitioners, with artists, with curators, has been having those um, kinds of conversations um, in one room with lots of very different people. So those have been really the key um, uh, things that have stood out from the conversation so far. Thank you. A number of commentators have expressed concerns that a Eurocentric focus is distorting the political and policy debates about migration. For instance, a recent migration conversation attendee complained that every talk and fund focuses on migration from Africa to Europe. In fact, there is a lot more migration within Africa, but nobody seems to talk about it. Would you like to comment more on this? Yeah, so I guess the the first point to make is really that it's not just um, within Africa, but it is within the global south itself. We've known this for a very long time, that the majority of migration, whether this is voluntary migration or forced migration, occurs south to south. So it occurs within the countries that are located in the global south. A very small minority of migrants and refugees actually make it to Europe or to the West in general. So that's the first sort of point to reiterate. Most people who leave their countries of origin do not travel long distances. They remain as close as they safely can um, to their home country so that they can maintain social and economic ties. They want to avoid moving out of an area of cultural familiarity. And very often the majority of migrants and refugees and asylum seekers have the intention to return back home as soon as they can. So South to South migrations are the norm and not the exception. It's important then within that context for us to recognize the challenges that southern host communities face um, in um, when a, a refugee in, uh, when a, a number of refugees arrive in these countries um, from neighboring countries when when there's been um, when there's been some kind of conflict over there. And these southern countries rely upon international assistance in order to support um, these these um, if we're talking about refugee communities, and they're being confronted by donor fatigue, their budgets to actually support these populations are getting smaller and smaller. And so they're under a great deal of pressure in terms of actually dealing with with, with the numbers. In turn, it's also clear that um, South to South migrations are also associated with high levels of xenophobia, um, high levels of um, uh, stigma attached to migrant workers, as well as attacks against or attacks on migrants themselves. And so there's very real issues that exist around South to South migration, which don't necessarily get as much attention, both academic and policy attention as they should do. Yeah, and I would I would add to that as well that I think that the Eurocentric focus also means that certain areas of migration or, or mobility, such as internally displaced persons, get less attention globally uh, than, say, across border movements, um, which, is, as Kavita was saying, is, a, is an issue also for donor fatigue and humanitarian responses. And also just this point that nobody seems to talk about it. The problem is that we're really finding in these conversations and what's so exciting about it is that people are talking about it. You know, we have colleagues at the Calcutta Migration Research Group or the Makerere University in Uganda who are doing fascinating work. And partly our role really is to just try and communicate that and, and get that out there. Um, so the work is being done. We just need to find more opportunities for scholars to exchange, you know, for, for, for different, um, for mobility within uh, migration studies itself, actually. We should practice a bit more uh, what, we, what we preach, I think. Um, 
I was also um, going to add just that the the Eurocentric focus, it's, um, you know, we're now having uh, the first global compact on migration, which has largely been uh, driven by the agenda of the USA and European states in relation to the so-called uh, refugee crisis or migrant crisis of, of recent years. Um, you know, and it, it's just really highlighted and brought to the fore the extent to which the global policy agenda is is driven by uh, the concerns and language of the global uh, global northern states really um and it's interesting what what issues really are focused on in the media so we talk about Donald Trump's border wall for example and you know most people would have an opinion on that but you know how many how many people know about the Serbia Hungary wall you know that's been been kind of uh, the source of multiple migrant deaths or in Calais the millions of pounds spent on building a wall between France and the UK for example so uh, i think it's it's interesting to make these comparisons um, as part of our global research agenda as well Thanks. A House of Lords committee recently warned that the UK's vibrant cultural industries could struggle to attract skilled talent from abroad if freedom of movement is restricted after Brexit. What impact do you think that mobility and movement have on the arts and creativity? Yeah, so this is again something that's really coming out of our migration conversations. Um, most, art, most artists have some sense of displacement or, or they feel at some way, in some way removed from society. So there's a common sense of displacement that shapes the kind of sensibility of an artist, if you, if you will. And also most artists have been at some point people on the move. Um, you know, if you, if you look, go to your your kind of average museum, you'll you'll notice that you know most of the painters have have travelled around um, and and been taken inspiration from multiple sources. Um, so it's interesting now that we're really seeing this kind of fetishization of the refugee artist. Um, I think we need to unpack those categorizations and recognise that migration and displacement. Uh, can be seen as a theme theme for art and also part of the artist's experience but but we shouldn't fetishize that necessarily and um, we don't talk about Einstein as a refugee scientist or Marx as a refugee philosopher or, or Mercury as a uh, Freddie Mercury as a refugee musician who's actually born in Zanzibar interestingly enough that's mm. kind of one of my uh interesting pub facts. Um, but I, I think this question of moving, like I was saying, for scholars also in migration studies, we need to be able to move to share ideas. And artists also need to be able to circulate to share share ideas and find inspiration. Okay, looking ahead, what does the future hold and what more do we need to do to enrich discussions around migration? So we thought that the first is to recognize that migration is not an aberration. So when we started off, you you, you gave the statistic that one billion people um, are on the move. So it's important to recognize migration as a norm rather than an exception, that even for people who do not move, their lives are touched by mobility. So that's hugely significant. And I think that if we start to think about it as a norm rather than an exception, that that will change the way in which we frame questions, the way in which we ask questions, and in the kinds of knowledge that we produce. The second was, um, and this is something that has come up in our global conversations again, is that in order to have this kind of reframing is perhaps um, this is an opportune time 
to think about moving from this sort of a focus on migration to a focus on mobility, because mobility is more all-encompassing than migration is. We have quite particular definitions of what migration is, who is a migrant, and who isn't a migrant. But when it comes to mobility, we have a much sort of wider concept, if you like, and everybody's lives are touched by mobility in one way or the other. And it connects all kinds of different levels and scales of mobility. So perhaps that would be a useful thing to do, to move from migration studies to mobility studies. And the third is really that in, in, in terms of thinking about what the future holds is to always be ever vigilant, but also always think about who is speaking and who is speaking for whom. So who is setting the agenda? So Jenny talked about the global compact um, on migration and the global compact on refugees. And although a great deal of effort and time and money probably was spent on having a series of sort of discussions to which different people were invited, different stakeholders were invited, they were held in different locations. The overwhelming consensus, particularly in the academic community, is that it still reflects a particular agenda from a particular perspective. So it's a very situated global agenda. Um, and we need to be all ever critical of the fact of who's speaking and who are they speaking for. Yeah, I would agree with with everything Kavita said, and just just really to stress as well the point that um, you know there's so much that uh, states in the in the global north can learn from the experiences that aren't being properly documented. Well, they are being documented, but they're not being really talked about and discussed in the global south. So, even just for example, you know Syria uh, now Syria has been hosting refugees in the Middle East region for, for its whole history as a country and has a huge wealth of knowledge about how to integrate refugees uh, populations so for example the Palestinians or the Armenians or, or Kurdish stateless persons in Syria so you know what can we in Europe now we're welcoming Syrian refugees learn from the Syrian refugees experiences of mm. being hosts themselves for example um, another example is the horrendous floods and fires that we're now seeing uh, in America and across Europe um, leading to situations of internal displacement in a way that we haven't really seen in recent history in these countries you know what can we learn from the way countries such as Bangladesh say have responded to uh, flooding and situations of uh, internal displacement in the country too yeah but uh, there's a lot of work to be done mm. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be busy yeah. Great. that's an interesting point to end on Thank you for listening to the Development Matters podcast and thanks to Kavita and Jenny for sharing their thoughts and insights with us today.